You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and welcome to episode 140. So we've uh, we've made it another week, Fran. and um, Without cancellation. That's yeah, awesome. And, and we have yeah. a really cool guest today, but we don't have a lot of time. So I want to get right into introducing Mary Phillips of the National Wildlife Foundation. Federation. Federation. I knew I was going to mess that up. <laughs> oh, gosh. Listen, I wrote it down so that I wouldn't do it. <laughs> and I'm glad you did it. Yeah. <laughs> and National we're not edi- Federation. And I'm not <laughs> editing it out. That's fine. That's fine. As long as it's corrected. Oh, gosh. So, Mary, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and the National Wildlife Federation? Yeah. Sure. Well, thanks so much. Um, I am the head of the Garden for Wildlife uh, Certified Wildlife Habitats Program at National Wildlife Federation. I've been doing that since 2014, and National Wildlife Federation has been around for over 80 years, uh, helping people um, unite and thrive uh, to help wildlife thrive. And um, one of the main pieces uh, of that work is helping people understand that wildlife is all around us, especially where we live. And that's what the Garden for Wildlife program is all about. It's helping people transform the way they uh, garden and landscape to help both wildlife and people uh, thrive. So one of the things that we've looked at over the years is a lot of habitat has disappeared um, from development, from agriculture, and again, in and around where people live. So how can we help restore, reclaim uh, those kind of habitat, essential food, water, cover places to raise young for our pollinators, our you know butterflies, bees, birds, um, and other wildlife uh, in these areas? That's really been the core of the Garden for Wildlife program that was started in 1973. Yeah, and it's funny because I'm still think kicking myself for messing up the name because I walk <laughs> past the sign. We have outside our office every day. I know the we, association. We we were really excited when we found yeah. out we were getting to talk to you. And for like Tom said, because we're we have certified wildlife habitats, and yes. one of the things that we deal with as in in trying to work with a paradigm shift is so many of our first time listeners or early listeners think of going somewhere to be a part of nature, not mm-hmm. that nature can be a part of where you live yep. that you can cohabitat and nature you know they, they there's a disconnect and yes. we try to help make that connect and that's what this program really encourages yes. and promotes so we were excited to get to talk to you about that a little bit more knowing like tom said every morning we walk in our office we pass the sign and it's a it's a nice source of pride for us and we wear it proudly we love that our customers see that before they walk in the office so we just wanted to talk to you a little bit more about that and like what what prompted that that project and what are some of the successes of that project? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm excited. I, yeah, I knew you guys were certified wildlife habitat and you actually are one of 284,000 right now of those certified wildlife I was habitat. feeling pretty good when he said the 284, that's pretty good. 284,000, that's even better. That's amazing. Yes, it, it is wow. better. And um, with our 50th anniversary here in 2023, our goal is to um, hit or surpass 300,000. Wow. So really, really hoping uh, that your listeners will get out there and, and uh, create habitat and certify it. And what I think 
think was so one of the key successes and exactly what you talked about your pride and your ability to um, share this, uh, you know, area to talk about it, why it's important. Um, as, uh, as you guys know, the core elements of becoming a certified wildlife habitat are food, water, cover, and places to raise young. And the primary way you can provide the bulk of those elements is through native plants. And then of course, with the water source, um, the, those elements are the same elements of habitat that uh, in 1973, U.S. forest researchers looked at to see, well, this is what we're putting in on reclaimed large public landscapes, um, land managed areas, and we're seeing wildlife return. So could people do that in a small scale in their residences? And that is really where the program uh, started. Um, they, they felt through their research, yes, <laughs> that did work and it does work. And um, that actually launched the, at that time it was called the Backyard Habitat, um, but it's the Certified Wildlife Habitat Program. And the whole Garden for Wildlife area is really to get that, you know, sea change in people's minds that, you know, engaging people school, worship, places of worship, um, business, all these landscapes can be transformed and become certified by life habitats, you know, again, as pollinator gardens, butterfly gardens, whatever, however people are kind of connected to it, those are kind of the, the ways. And the successes we've had is the growth, but the other successes is the storytelling and the sharing and the network that's formed. We, on an average, have um, over the years um, between 250 and four. 100,000 subscribers to our email newsletter every year. So we really have been able to engage this amazing community. And that doesn't count all the schoolyard habitats and all the community wildlife habitats we have. So it's just grown kind of in an amazing way over these last five decades. We It it was important for us to do this as the bulk of our material goes to restoration projects that are promoting this. Yes. We've felt that it would be hypocritical if we weren't supporting that. That's a big part of what we do and that the plants here are supporting so much more. Before they go out into the rest of the world to, to serve their purpose, they're serving yeah. a purpose here as well for, for wildlife, which which can wreak havoc also. <laughs> <laughs> can be a difficult balance. But you know, we love – like when we had Benjamin Vogt on um, oh, talking yeah. about uh, you know, to him if a plant doesn't fully – uh, support all the life cycles, mm-hmm. then it's not doing its job. And I love that backyard habitat or or uh, certified wildlife habitat really factors in all of that to to make it work. It makes people think about what it takes to support wildlife. Well, it does, and I think one of the biggest successes that we've seen is people's aha moments to exactly what Ben was talking about is that these plants have such a tremendous purpose in the the survival and the ability for so many key iconic species to survive. And obviously monarchs with milkweed, milkweed's a host plant. It provides those, um, you know, different life cycles, a place to uh, lay their egg and for the uh, the young, the caterpillars to feed on. It's the only plant, as, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, that actually monarchs can survive. Well, that's across the board with so many species. And then also, if you look at the native bees, especially our pollen specialist bees, there's key plants that are essential that they cannot survive um, without. And so one of the key things has been our uh, partnership over the years um, with Dr. Doug Tallamy 
And he developed um, the research, he and his team at the University of Delaware, uh, what we have is the native plant finder. And you can put your zip code in and find the native plants. The way it comes out, though, the results is that it's the top plants that support the highest numbers of wildlife in your zip code. So it's not just like a, a native plant list of every single native mm-hmm. plant, though it is pretty comprehensive yeah. once you scroll down. <laughs> um, but that's what you see first. And that's, that is a success in helping people make that shift of, wow, I, gosh, it's not just like planting any plant. I can plant native plants and make a difference, but then I can even plant these keystone native plants that support up to 90% of the wildlife in a certain area. So we have worked very closely and we've actually expanded um, uh, and, and have gotten more research uh, in different, at different ecoregion levels about uh, those more expansive plant lists of keystone plants. How popular has a native plant finder become for you? I'm sure you could see the amount of web hips that you get. Like, has there been a moment where it just like clicked and took off or has it been a gradual growth where every day you're like, look at this, it just keeps it Yeah, keeps so we launched it in 2016 and it was a gradual growth. But then um, we also launched uh, the Million Pollinator Garden Challenge uh, between 2015 and 2018. So we were doing so much outreach and that also got the native plant finder more visibility um, we we average, particularly in the spring, um, between forty and sixty thousand people just between April and May coming to that site. Um, annually, it's it's much bigger, so it's really been phenomenal. Yeah, and that's no small feat. It's um, no. that's a, a lot of my job is tracking how many people are using our website, and it's forty yeah. sixty thousand is a pretty big number. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's just in those two peaks. Yeah. months. Yeah. It, oh, yeah. It continues like through June, mm-hmm. you know, you get into pollinator month. It still stays pretty steady. Um, the, the peak visits are really between March and uh, fall, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. That number makes me smile because that reflects awareness. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and that's yes. something that Tom and I talked, you know, over our three year journey doing this, the awareness. Just we, we talk about the amount of native plant articles we see on a weekly basis yeah. where three years ago we couldn't find We'd be fighting over the same one to talk about, and now we we have so many to choose from. So I love that awareness growth. Um, before, because you're involved in so much, we have so much to talk about. <laughs> I don't know how you juggle it all. Um, for our listeners that would like to learn more about uh, becoming a certified wildlife habitat, what does it entail for the average homeowner, and and what? steps do they need to take to look into that? Sure, sure. So we have a, a checklist at nwf.org uh, slash certify, and um, it takes you through all those elements of food, water, cover, and places to, to raise young, and that um, there's a downloadable checklist. So you can actually print it out and walk around your property and look at, um, you know, how many of these um, characteristics of these elements do I have? Um, there are uh, numbers, uh, like you need a minimum number of uh like, for example, for um, water, a water feature, you need some sort of water feature, and your water feature can be a bird bath or um, a fountain, or if you are within a, a close proximity to a natural water source, that can count too. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So there's that's, and, and it gives you those options. And then we also have it's not just food, water, cover places to raise young. Um, cover, for example, could be everything from you know, shrubs and screen bushes to actual, um, you know, like a roosting box or um, something like that, that could actually provide cover for wildlife. 
But the other component that's absolutely essential and this goes to the awareness is the sustainability characteristics. And that's part of what people sign off on uh, to do, that they're not going to be using chemicals, um, you know, pesticides and herbicides on their property. They're going to be doing uh, water conservation. They're going to use mulch where where needed. Um, You know, those kinds of things, um, there's a whole checklist of of those. And we have certain criteria that if you hit some basics, I mean, at some level, it's an honor system. It's an education and awareness system. But everyone who certifies is saying, yes, I'm committing to these efforts. And over 60% of them also buy a sign (laughs) that talks about the food, water cover and places to raise young, because then they can have that in their property, talk to their neighbors when they walk by and all of that. And that's so important. We've talked about it numerous times that if you, I use my garden at home as an example, because it's not your conventional uh, front landscape. It looks a little different. And just having that signage there, all of a sudden people look, Without the sign, people are like, oh, this looks a little crazy. I don't know what's going on. You have the sign, all of a sudden they get it. And it's like, oh, this is, yeah, it might not be what I'd love to see in my front yard, but this has a purpose. This is important. And maybe I do want to take some practice of that and bring it home. What what I love about it is it does prompt, someone may be unknowingly doing most of this. Yes. And it prompts them to take ownership. Mm Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. we always talk about the biggest part of a successful restoration or project is stewardship, and that's yeah. that's the hardest thing. So if you can get someone to actively take stewardship or mm-hmm. ownership, man, you, I feel like you've won the like a good portion yes. of that battle. Yes. <laughs> yes. So or to see how close you are, it's like oh, if we just did a couple more things, we could have yes. a certified wildlife habitat, and then you're taking ownership and you tell you tell that story to others, yes. and that's how that message spreads. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, and I would I would say like the signage is an educational thing. Yeah, how important is education to this whole mission? It's essential, and we, as a matter of fact, uh, Garden for Wildlife um, has sat for the bulk of its existence in our education department, and and the education is so key because we have so many networks. So the the key way you you educate is obviously you can do stuff on social media and online, but really getting to people. And we also have a network of 25 of our uh, 50 National Wildlife Federation state affiliates. Um, They actually are Garden for Wildlife partners and ambassadors, and they advocate for, um, and they do workshops, they do plant sales, they um, advocate for legislation, that is supportive to native planting. Um, so there's so many levels that we're educating, both nationally, um, state level. We also have regional offices that have habitat uh, staff that are doing all sorts of projects um, in their in their regions. So having that multi-layered uh, outreach and education, um, again, national to grassroots, is absolutely key. So you mentioned the Garden for Wildlife Initiative. This is something else that you're involved in. Uh, one of the many things, one of the many hats you wear. Um, what led to the creation of the Garden for Wildlife Initiative? What are some of the challenges you face with this program? Sure. So Garden for Wildlife itself is the umbrella that includes certified wildlife habitats and okay. all of the various education and outreach that I was just talking about. It includes our community wildlife habitat program, um, our Mayor's Monarch Pledge that was started um, We've uh, over the last – since 2016, have engaged um, over 1,200 municipalities uh, in that program and getting people to commit to various actions mm-hmm. to support habitat for monarchs and pollinators. Um, so those 
it, it's very encompassing that way from an educational and a public perception standpoint. But the um, one of the things that we found is because of the demand for native plant information and actually native plants, gardenforwildlife.com has been launched, which is a, a it's going to be a public benefit corporation where we actually are going to be selling. Well, not we are we have been selling in the last year. We launched it in 2021 as a, a pilot. Um, and, and we had over 300% growth um, mm-hmm. in the last year. So that is helping people have collections uh, and individual plants that we've identified based on the research we we have done with Doug and um, in the in the field to actually find the right plants for them to actually have shipped to their house. Because what we are finding is so many people were so um, interested, but not everyone has the time to go and investigate um, where all these plants are and what mm-hmm. what's really the right one for where they live. So that, so the garden for a wildlife, um, that other component of it has really just catapulted and uh, we're going to be doing a lot more with that. One of the things that, that we see is, sorry, Tom. I oh no, you go, go ahead. Is that, you know, one of the biggest things we hear from our listeners is we can't find native plants exactly. or, or if you can find them, they don't necessarily, if it's not a dedicated native plant nursery, they don't have the staff that can really help them Correct. with the information they need. So yeah. you're solving that really yes. for a lot of people. So, and just so you can sing the praises of the program, how many kits was it that you sold? In, um, it was uh, over 17,000. Yeah. In, in just a couple months, correct? Uh, well, the 17,000 was uh, our fiscal year, which was okay. uh, a full year. All right. Okay. That's yeah, a lot of that, that was up from 4,000 in our launch year. Yes. Wow. So that that's the thing that we're seeing. And um, one of the other things we're involved in is research with uh, National Garden Association. And we, we really saw this increase in 20. 20, one in four people were purchasing plants specifically for butterflies, moth, uh, butterflies, bees, and birds. Um, that jumped in 2021 to one in three people. Wow. So it's really, you know. That just gave me goosebumps, by I the way. Say, yeah, <laughs> you guys have been in this since 1983. So to see, I mean, it's all your work too. It's all these growers. And that's one of the things that we really want to we are doing and want to do more of is really work with the networks of growers out there. All of you guys who've been in the trenches really being the forefront of ambassadors for why native plants are important. How can we help, you know, raise all boats really to get that word out and also support all these, uh, you know, more local growers. Yeah. And what I wanted to go back to is um, I really want to put an emphasis on that. Most of these are kits. You can get individual species, Another thing I really appreciate about when you get individual species through the gardenforwildlife.com is you can't just buy one. You have to get three, <laughs> which is important. It's um, yeah. So yeah. I've, I've done some retail stuff and it always drove me a little nuts when people would get like one of 20 different things because I'm like, that's not really how a lot of this stuff grows. There is yeah. stuff that grows singularly, but a lot of times they're growing in Plant three, like in, yeah, in communities. Yeah. There's three of them or five of them or sometimes 20 of them. Um, Claudia West actually gave a really good presentation about yeah. garden design and how she would kind of pick stuff out. And she's like, yeah, you usually don't have just one of something and you yeah. usually don't have a hundred of something and nothing else in there. You'll have right. like three of this and then I'll be kind of surrounded by like nine of these. And so you're kind of, you're taking a lot of the guesswork out of it for people who might want the diversity, the plant diversity, but don't yes. necessarily have the background to pick and choose themselves. Sure. 
Absolutely. No, that's absolutely part of the design. And uh, I love that you mentioned Claudia. She actually did a, a, a little brochure that we have and we worked with her. We worked with her in um, uh, design with uh, Orioles Camden Yard, uh, Native oh, awesome. Garden, awesome. Uh, which is really neat. She's awesome. And um, no, but that that's what that's part of the education is, again, it's been an aha moment for people realizing that connection of plant diversity and abundance mm-hmm. is absolutely key to wildlife uh, diversity and abundance. And there's so many studies that have come out in this last, you know, well, now it's getting into being a decade, but it was like about five to seven years um, that show, you know, especially in uh, urban areas of that studying the number and species of uh, uh, flowers, sorry, flowering plants um, and host plants that actually contributed to, to the numbers and diversity of uh, bumblebees and other uh, pollinator populations. So it's it's really been amazing to see that grow as well, as well as all these policies that are proactive towards this kind of planting. I, I, to me, I feel that part of the success for your programs are the message that they're sending. One of the things that Tom and I talk about a lot is how to grow that circle and how to send the right message that's inviting for people instead yes. of pushing yes. – instead of telling them what they're doing wrong, telling them things that they can do mm-hmm. – Right, and even just seeing it more prominently displayed, like places like Camden Yards, we know uh, we talked about a story that Dodger Stadium has been changing to all native plants. Um, oh, awesome! Yeah, so it's like there's some fantastic, great messages where uh, uh-huh. they've been doing some great work to kind of show all the different ecotypes of the area and the signage. They said that people have been. Not just taking pictures of the signs, but stealing the signs so they can go home and buy the plants. Yeah, but it's it's a great message that yeah. when you're reaching a lot of people without yes. turning them off. Um, have you have you had any negative feedback? I can't imagine seeing any negative feedback for it. But we don't personally have it in the program, but we do get calls at times from homeowners that are a little overwhelmed because they might be in a community with a homeowner association that has really rigid rules. So. Um, our community wildlife habitat team has actually been working to provide guidelines for uh, HOAs and for folks in those areas to create new policies that are much more native plant friendly. And you might have heard recently, it was in the um, New York Times and also in the Washington Post, um, the article about the couple in Maryland that actually fought that and actually got some legislation, uh, you know, changed in the state of Maryland to be mm-hmm. supportive for native plants. So more and more of that is going on around the country. We're, I think, what was the name of the article? They fought the lawn and the they lawn won lost. Lost. The lawn lost. Yeah, it's a great, <laughs> yeah. great article. Yes, it, was, it was awesome. And that uh, journalist was really great to work with. Um, so really, really appreciate what we're seeing is so many journalists and media um interest as well, which is really, really helps in the education. And particularly people are so moved by obviously the monarch and hummingbirds and other species that they have kind of a emotional connection to. And when they realize what they're doing at home can make a difference for those individual species, that really has been galvanizing um, for this whole movement. Like when you see someone like Margaret Roach doing a native plant uh, article like twice a month for the New York Times or the Washington yeah. Post is doing it more often. I think L.A. Times every week has a, a native plant article, which is yeah. and and yeah. and tells people where they can go to volunteer to help. Like, I don't know. It's it's very heartwarming to see it start to spread. Yeah. And it's it's a good feeling. 
Well, it is. So back in 2007, 2008, I've always gardened. I've always done like vegetable gardens. But at that time, I I had three and a five-year-old. And we were trying to do kind of a fun thing in the yard and get them into gardening. And we had a box turtle um, come into our yard. I live near a creek in Maryland. And um, the kids were fascinated by that. And I said, so we started looking up stuff about the box turtle. This is how I was connected to National Wildlife Federation. We started looking up, you know, what do we do for this, you know, this, this turtle and do we pick it up, do all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and I think we must've Googled something like, you know, turtle in your backyard or something. (laughs) And the backyard triggered the search and connected us to the certified wildlife habitat program. And the, wow. and I shared it with the kids and, and my husband and we we're like, oh my gosh, well, we have a lot of these elements. We need to do this. Let's put more of these plants. But I will tell you at that time, literally on the weekend, throw my kids in the car, driving all over Maryland to find native plants. I mean, mm-hmm. there was, you know, they were out there, but they were at nurseries or they were at wholesale places. And it was just such a, a and that didn't change for quite a long time, the accessibility. Um, and even now, even though they're more accessible in some some stores and there's some great lines of plants at our local um, garden center, it's still very hard for people. You don't have that time to, to be driving around. Yeah. No, and that's one of the things that we talk about is that there needs to be more native plant growers, not that we're trying to give ourselves more competition, but exactly. the demand's going to continue to grow. People yeah. can already find what they're looking for. We need more to help spread that message, and if there's more plants, there will be more demand. And even to take it a step further is there's – like we are a larger native plant grower, so – we have to play the efficiency game at sometimes too. And it doesn't make sense to grow a hundred of something when we can grow a hundred thousand of something else. Um, And you need the people that can fill those voids. And there's plants that just, it doesn't make any sense for us to grow them because we just can't do it on the large enough scale, but there's demand for a few hundred and someone else can fill in those, those holes. That's, we talk about this all the time, how there should be, you need those smaller independent growers too. Well, you do. And we, we definitely want to support them. Last spring, we did an article on some different smaller growers and, and leaders um, in different parts of the country last year in our National Wildlife Magazine. But um, in 2018, we actually surveyed about a thousand uh, nurseries and growers. We got around 400 responses, which was awesome. And um, and it was exactly that. We were trying to understand, like, what was the level? Were there minimum volumes or quantities? Because so many, especially if you guys in restoration, you've got to have multi-year contracts. You've got to know and plan from a business model. What the heck you know, your income is going to be. And so that's one of the reasons we launched um, this uh, new platform and business is because we want to be able to really start tracking and getting that consumer um, pipeline so that you can plan. So we, the growers Mm -hmm. in the network can actually plan and we can say, gosh, we sold this much, you know, this year with this marketing and this outreach and this market, we think we're going to do X and really then contract um, for the volume with these growers in advance. And sometimes it's just connecting growers with consumers. It's exactly. there's demand that you just may not know. Or exactly. You know, some like when we before we grew ferns, we wanted to grow ferns. We didn't know what the demand was. Maybe the demand wasn't there at first, but then once people like, oh, you have these, that demand changed drastically. Yeah. So you, you have to play that game too, because sometimes you just don't know until you try. <laughs> until you try. No, no, that's really true. And I think one of the things that we're challenged with right now, we kind of naively thought, well, everyone growing native plants is going to tell their customers, you know, I have this native plant. This may or may not be right for where you live. It's native, but it might not be native to you. And what we're seeing more with this movement to online, 
and this is what differentiates us, um, is that we do extreme mm-hmm. due diligence about where these plants are going to be sent to. And we have a zip code, you know, functionality mm-hmm. on our uh, website. So if you're going to go, well, one, we have state pages, yeah. so we only list uh, plants and collections that are native to those states. But still people sometimes want something else, or they'll see something on another page and be like, I really want that. Our zip code is going to say, no, that's not native to you. It's not going to go to you. And that is really different than what we're seeing out there with some of the other folks. And, and I get it because it takes a lot of work (laughs) on the back end to do this. So, um, but they're kind of like, they put the onus on the consumer, like you can buy it where, and, and, and I do get it. It's better than, you know, an invasive or an ornamental that might not have the wildlife benefits, but at the same time, we're really just as a conservation organization, that's our commitment to making sure we are letting people understand why why we limit that distribution and as part of education like one of the things uh locally jersey friendly yards their website that we love is that it will allow you to pick an invasive but then it tells you why you can't have it and why it's an invasive and so when you're going through the plant list they throw those kind of things in there and people go oh burning bush i know burning bush i'm going to select that Mm -hmm. and then when you select it it's like oh no this is an invasive this is why you don't use this plant. That's a great, that's a really great. <laughs> it's a great learning tool. It's a great learning tool. Um, so along with Certified Wildlife uh, Habitat and the Garden for Wildlife Initiative, you also coordinate the Pollinator and Monarch Strategy. And I know you mentioned that earlier. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So in 2015, um, we really did launch National Wildlife Federation, and I was um, a lead uh, person in launching that at National Wildlife Federation at the time. Since then, we've grown into a whole team at National Wildlife Federation that works on that, and we have a chief monarch strategist now, Rebecca Quino Perez, um, who is absolutely phenomenal, and she's now leading it for the organization, but I work closely with her as well as other team members uh, on that strategy. But what that really entailed is us partnering with all the other monarch and pollinator groups, and at the time, joining the Monarch Joint Venture, looking at a monarch conservation strategy for the Central Flyway, uh, working uh, with our ag team with roadsides and uh, the states that are highly agricultural in that uh, central flyway that is all the way from Canada down to Mexico, um, kind of through the Minnesota down to Texas corridor. Um, so we've done a lot. We worked with state wildlife agencies on their monarch conservation plans. Um, it's just multi-leveled as well as, again, working in the policy arena on that. So we're continuing that whole strategy. We're looking at what, you know, what is going on on there, but we also launched for consumers at that time butterfly heroes to educate people on um, and getting their families involved in planting for um, uh, for, for monarchs and butter, uh, butterflies and pollinators. So there's been like at the same time, it's all these kind of policy network conservation science strategies as well as with the consumer outreach. So that's kind of what the whole. Uh, monarch and pollinator conservation strategy. I love that you're working with all these other organizations. You know, throughout Mm -hmm. the three years, we've talked to so many people doing great work along, you know, the Xerces Society or Debbie DeGlava at Sustainable Monarch and and all these great organizations. I love that you're kind of pulling them all together. Like everyone's working towards that same goal, but you don't always get to work with each other. And it's- No, we didn't. And I'll tell you one of the best experiences I've had. I've had so many, but- we, in order to launch the Million Pollinator Garden Challenge, we actually convened what's called the National Pollinator Garden Network. And that was 50 national organizations, many of the monarch ones that I mentioned, um, plus others and some of the ones you've just mentioned. Um, 
that was a, a three third three sector partnership. So it was all the conservation organizations. It was uh, federal government agencies working in co- conservation and the garden trade. So we worked with a lot of uh, the network of garden centers. We looked worked with a lot of growers and other associations that represented the garden trade to really see how could we all come together to look at this issue. And I think for for us, what we saw is this was really unprecedented. Those 50 organizations, we, we weren't funded to do this. It was, uh, <laughs> it was exhausting because of that. But it was also um, everyone loaned their social media person. Everyone, um, you know, put in their uh, online piece of this. And we actually exceeded and recruited over a million pollinator gardens and mapped them. So it was really, really exciting. But it was it was unprecedented. And, and we continue to, in different ways, work with different folks in that network. But to manage and keep that going, it, it, it definitely needs resources. We, we, we talked about a lot of the things you you do, and we want to talk about the social aspect of it. But before we do, with all the things we just talked about, what are you most proud of with your work with NWF? Is there one think- one shining moment that you like really stands out to you, or is it hard to choose? Uh, well, yes. So one 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 moment was, you know, having all these folks come together, uh, and. S- I think there's two levels. There's one when I'm walking around my neighborhood <laughs> and I see uh, certified wildlife habitats in my neighborhood and that, you know, our neighborhood during COVID came together and built a pollinator garden at our entrance to our neighborhood. And that's a certified garden. So every day that's like a, a wonderful moment. And when I go walking, I see that and, and see the neighbors who worked on that and, and, and continue to work on it. And it's, it's awesome. But then at a really high level, we had two moments. We were able to visit the white house for the million pollinator garden challenge. And um, first lady Michelle Obama had planted a pollinator garden to complement her food strategy, her food garden, okay. garden efforts. Um, so that was really exciting. Um, they, they wouldn't put any, any organization signage there cause they can't, yeah. but <laughs> we were hoping for that, but just to have it labeled as a pollinator garden and to see it there. And then we also lit up the empire state building, um, <laughs> with pollinator, uh, for, for national pollinator month, um, you know, one year. So to, and wow. again, it took all those 50 organizations to working together to make that happen. And then to use that moment to get more awareness throughout all of our extensive networks. So I think there's been so many things. And I think the other really big one is we've had amazing research done on the certified wildlife habitat program on pollinator gardens um, that actually compare what these properties do next to either not managed at all properties or managed heavily lawn treated uh, properties uh, versus xeriscape, uh, a variety, and really showed that um, the the number and diversity of wildlife in the certified wildlife habitat, uh, natural landscapes um, often doubled um, what you would see anywhere else. Wow, I, yeah. I feel like a slacker again. I would, yeah, I would love <laughs> to look at the that like research and just like. Yes. I'll send you the link. Yeah, that's, right. that's pretty cool. What, was there anything like other interesting stuff that that research showed? Yeah, so it does show that there's more of a interest in transforming portions of lawn to natural native landscape, which is really exciting. Um, it it showed again with the birds, which was really cool. That if you looked at kind of the traditional lawn heavy landscape, you might have some birds, but they were like either 
not native birds mm-hmm. um, or, or, you know, grackles and um, sparrows and, you know, those kinds of birds versus the bird diversity in the certified wildlife habitat yards where you actually had every time they would compare a different set of lawns, all of a sudden you would see this. And there's actually a, a webinar on this, which shows it's really great that the researchers did for us. So I'll send you that link too. Awesome. Um, that actually shows the number and variety of birds that would actually increase and change across these different yards. I love that. That's a, yeah. yeah, I would, if you can share that with us, yeah, I would definitely absolutely. love to see that. <laughs> Um, uh, you, you mentioned the White House yeah. and the pollinator garden. Is there – every administration we see come in and we see the garden get planted and like the last one like, – because it's in the – we see our, our, our friends in the industry saying I supplied boxwoods to the White House and this. Is there a native plant garden at the White House? We feel like that would be a great lead-by-example yeah. message. It is the the pollinator garden that okay. was planted. I though I don't know because I haven't been there since that. That was, I want to say that was twenty seventeen. I, I I can't remember if it was twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen, but I'm pretty sure it was twenty seventeen. Um, and we've had two administration changes since then, so I don't know. Um, I do know that the rose garden was changed mm-hmm. <laughs> in the last administration, so I don't know what other kind of work on the property was done. We yeah. we love to tell the story that John McGee told us. I don't know if you're familiar with John McGee, I know but John. Yeah. yeah, where he was working. I think it was an admiral, and mm-hmm. he was he was trying to. He wasn't happy with John's design, and he wanted him to use certain plants that John didn't want to use. And he was trying to figure out how to get through. Told me he's like, I don't know. I don't want to use plants from Asia. I, I want to use plants from America. Like I want to use Virginia plants, American plants. And he goes, yeah. it really struck a chord with him. And he I'll goes, bet. no, you're right. You're, you're right. I do want that. Yeah, you know, and it's awesome. <laughs> we yeah. just we've been thinking about that ever yeah. since. So so we thought about it so much. We made a T-shirt. This is plain American plants <laughs> 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 with red, white, and blue. <laughs> oh wow! And um, and I, Fran, you have yours for for I didn't get. Show. I oh, don't have that one. You don't no. have that one. Uh, mine didn't come in time, so I don't even know if either are going to wear them. But I was really excited to wear a plain American plants T-shirt in um in a room full of non-native plants primarily (laughs) yeah yeah no well and i think what's so cool about that and this is one of the things that really intrigued me and and i had done before i came to national wildlife federation i had run a small uh native plant consulting business called the abundant backyard and i work specifically with schools and um places of worship and homeowners but i also did some curriculum work um and and um content work so the the native plant garden we had at this one school Uh, the fourth grade teacher did a whole section on Maryland heritage. And it was so awesome because to your point, there's a natural history component Mm -hmm. as well to these native plants. And they've been used for, you know, generations in a variety of ways, um, both from, you know, medicinal to, you know, false blue indigo was used as a dye, you know, so it's, it's really fascinating to do all that. And the Maryland state, flower, I'm sorry, this Maryland state bird is the Baltimore checker spot. And it's the same um, kind of checkered uh, design that's also was originally uh, is on our flag. And it's originally from the coat of arms of Lord Baltimore. (laughs) So it's like this whole continuity that connects the natural history of the state to the, um, you know, to these to these species, which is really kind of cool. I think Maryland's really progressive. I know we just talked about it was right before the holidays. New New Jersey does too. Yes, yeah. (laughs) I'm not saying that, but like I know um, Maryland's Department of Natural Resources just put out a a cookbook or recipe uh, guide 
for native plants and for local wildlife and things, yeah. you know, and I just feel you do get it in New Jersey as well. But anytime we run across someone who grew up in the Chesapeake Bay area, yeah. that's part of how they identify themselves and it's part of who they are. That's a really good point. And I think the Bay, yeah, and that is for us personally, I mean, that's some of the things like our family just loves, you know, going and exploring everything. There's so many amazing nooks and crannies around the Bay to mm-hmm. hike and see. But um, but also in New Jersey, so in, in New Jersey, New Jersey Audubon is the National Wildlife Federation state affiliate and um, really has done some progressive, uh, amazing work in the native plant space and particularly also working on some of this policy stuff. So I think it's really, it's been neat to see. I would say the whole Mid-Atlantic yeah. is actually, um, has a, a unique uh, lead, I think, in some of the native plant work. Actually, Tom has been working on on some of his property with uh, New Jersey Audubon for awesome. quail, quail habitat. Yeah, right? we have a, a farm. Okay, cool. I haven't given an update in a while on this project. Primarily because I haven't worked on it in a while. I've been waiting until February. Um, but, yeah, we, we are working with uh, – actually, it's a USDA grant um, awesome. to create quail habitat, uh, Very cool. which is surprisingly more plant removal than is planting. <laughs> you got to remove the plants, the wrong plants first, and then you right, can plant the course. right plants. But Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, we talked about all these great educational tools and services that are there for, for everyone to take advantage of if, if you're looking to promote wildlife and, and native plants and healthy ecosystems. Um, when, when people are thinking about their landscapes, how do we get them to think about ecosystem services? It, I know these are great steps, um, yeah. but to the average person, like is, is there something – not just ecosystem services, just even native plants in general. Like, is there a message that's more salient to the average person that's not thinking about that? Yeah, I think one of the things that we found resonating with folks is understanding the native plants. Obviously, we talk about the benefits to wildlife, but there's also the benefits to your watershed, um, particularly the way native plants' root systems um, are designed um, really helps with stormwater runoff and um, also carbon, you know, so obviously trees, woodies, um, really help with the carbon impact. So really talking about, you get this whole package when you have a native landscape, you're, you're helping the wildlife. You're also helping you, yeah. <laughs> you know, by having a healthier, uh, community, um, with not using chemicals with this, with these great root systems that help with, you know, water runoff with the carbon impact and really talking about the full package that the native plants bring um, does really resonate with people, especially when you give them really concrete examples. Just from a mental aspect as well. I know for me, I spent a good hour Saturday morning with my camera in the backyard photographing birds, you know, like just seeing the diversity that was coming to the yard and what, that connection is there when you're just sitting there and you're seeing what surrounds around you. I know Tom has mentioned that a few times and it's, you know, I think that's an important aspect that a lot of people don't think about. Like as far yeah. as stress to, to be yes. able, I don't know, maybe some people would find that stressful to me. It, it totally takes the stress away. Well, actually that resonates with the study that just came out this last week. It was a whole uh, study that actually tracked the amount of bird song uh, in an area and people's happiness and mental health level. Really? And I'll send you that link too. Uh, I would love that. <laughs> and we'll put, because, we'll put all these links in the show notes too so that yeah, everyone can yeah, access them. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and there's another one about gardening and mental health that just came out as well That's that's phenomenal. So I think – it is like just, but also the fact that you're taking that time in nature 
you know, right in your backyard. Like to your point earlier, you, you know, not everyone has time to like jump in the car and, and go hike, you know, Appalachians or, <laughs> or even a park near them. Um, but you can create that setting and you can, you know, we sell something called um, a, a fragrant flower collection, which is um, uh, Agastache and bee balm and um, mints. Um, they're all, powerful pollinator plants but they also create amazing fragrance you know Mm -hmm. so you have this beautiful oasis in your own space and a lot of those are are known to be a little more deer resistant too so it's it's so many so many wonderful attributes for those um in working with homeowners do you think it's difficult to break down like to get them thinking that way is it difficult to break down their their perceptions of what a garden should be or traditional gardening to to work this way I think in some cases, some people are very wedded to what they either grew up with or, you know, again, they perceive it to be too time intensive. And I think once they see models of where it can't be, and some people are very structured, so they want a structured environment. And obviously, native plant gardens are a little more <laughs> casual, let's say. <laughs> and um, I, I mean, for me, I, I love that because you can bring structure to those with you know, uh, benches and, and bird baths and, and bird houses. Like you can actually make focal points with paths. You can provide that structure. So they don't have to be just like a, a field or a meadow in your front yard. They can actually have some structure and form. And I think the more people start seeing those examples, they really, really get that. And that's, that's one of the things we're working with another partner called Tilly Landscape Design. It's an online landscape design and they have uh, committed to really working to create plans for certified wildlife habitats with a lot of their clients. And that's I, – I, Tom, that's something – I'll give you credit. I've heard you mention on a few cases like bringing some uh, – like, I'm not like sure. Adding, <laughs> no, no. It's like adding a little formality yeah. where you can use uh, yes. like landscape walls or something like oh, that yeah, just yeah, to yeah. keep well, it a little I, more contained. That wasn't my idea, Fran. That was uh, – <laughs> Kelly Gilt said that. <laughs> Kelly Gilt from the Zerk Society said it in a presentation. I'm like, yeah, that's a really good idea. Okay. Thank <laughs> you, Kelly. <Yeah. laughs> So I'm just I'm just looking at time, and I want to make sure yeah. we we get you out of here in the right amount of time. Oh, thanks. Uh, you, you you talked to us a little bit about how you kind of made your way to the National Wildlife Federation, but what started you on this path to your career before that? So uh, my career way prior to that was working with uh, a lot of health and human service national nonprofits and doing a lot of consulting with those, but. I did really see a lot of them with were mentoring programs with youth, a lot had to do with youth. Their disconnect from nature was so significant. And as I worked with those, and then I started working with some green um, organizations more locally in the area in Maryland and and in I in my town I live in, um, really really looking at these green initiatives and just the, the again the mental health connection um, between being in green spaces uh, and and having that access right where people live is absolutely so essential. And I think that that was part of my motivation for moving into this space um, at that time. Um, But as a child, I mean, I was out, like you were saying, taking photos of the birds. I had my little... Again, dating myself, Instamatic, um, out there and took pictures of wildflowers. Just really, I really love the early spring wildflowers. And um, that that um, was something I would just, my mom would be like, where are you? <laughs> and I would be, you know, off. We had woods behind us. So I was 
fortunate to be able to just go exploring, you know, me and my dog. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy that you took this path. And and for those reasons, when we had Children in Nature Network on um, yeah. and hearing a lot about that disconnect, we really, you know, if, if you can educate from that age forward, it, it makes yeah. a huge difference and it, it helps with solving those disconnect issues. And it's that's that's a very valuable very valuable part of this puzzle mm-hmm. and I'm happy that that's part of what guides you to, yeah. to do this. So that's fantastic to hear. All right. For the sake of time, last question. It's always the simplest yet hardest. Yes. What is your favorite native plant? So I was thinking about that. I It is very hard. It <laughs> is. And we won't hold you to it. It's not okay. a forever choice. Well, I kind of have like for the season. So okay. Spring, um, I love, as I said, the spring ephemerals, love the wildflowers, spring beauties, but also I was able to really be able to grow some amazing bluebells in my yard. Absolutely love those. Um, As you get into summer, um, the different varieties of milkweed have been really just beautiful. And um, from the tuberosa, the orange butterfly milkweed, and the Incarnata, the rose swamp milkweed um, are two that do fortunately well in my landscape. So um, those have been wonderful. And then in fall, I the different asters that um, just they are so loaded with <laughs> uh, bees and their colors are just terrific. So so I guess I would I would have to say also because three season bloom is really important for that wildlife. So yes. I can't just pick one. <laughs> no, those are awesome choices and fantastic choices. So I, I love it. Uh, especially the asters. I don't, I don't think they get like, I think they're getting more credit than they have yeah. in the past now. And yeah. I love to see that. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we always end the show with, with final thoughts. And this is where we, we hand the floor over to you just Briefly, um, you can Until summarize. Until we take it back. Yeah, That's, we take it back. Tom we and I will you, do Then we too. take it back and do it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but this is where you can summarize. You can promote something. Uh, you can share something, however you want to use the floor. It's yours. Sure. Thank you. So, um, again, thank you. And thank you guys for your leadership. I mean, since the 80s doing this, like I said, absolutely essential to work with uh, growers like you guys um, leading the way here um, has, has really been key to where this 50-year movement of Garden for Wildlife has gone. Um, And and you guys have played a big role in that. So thank you. And then um, I guess just because I always get asked at the end of things like this is like, really, how can people help? Where is it easy for them to help? And uh, we have two two websites is uh, thegardenforwildlife.com and nwf.org slash garden, which I would say is more of our library of everything you can do um, in all these spaces with lots of great resources where gardenforwildlife.com is literally DIY plants that are curated for where you live. You can have shipped to you. So it's kind of those two areas. Thank you. Cause we were going to ask you that in the outro, how people can. Yeah. Now eat. I don't have anything to say. Tom, do you want to go or so, you want me to go? Um, I'll, I'll go. Cause it's, it's quick and we already hit on it, but it's how important signage can be. Yes. This kind of stuff. It's, mm-hmm. Education is something we talk about in almost every single episode. It's just people don't know what some of this stuff is for. And if you don't have that signage, the, like the example I brought up earlier, it can kind of look a little chaotic and maybe even a little messy. But just adding that sign gives it purpose. It, it already had purpose. I didn't say it gives it purpose. It explains that purpose to a lot yeah. of other people. Yes. And, um, and that's so, so important because it can take someone looking at it and saying, I don't like this, to, oh, this is something I want. 
mm-hmm. um, just by having a sign there that kind of explains what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, you know, it's it's easy for the the newcomer to get overwhelmed and not know where to start. I think we're lucky to be in the information technology part of of, of where we're at right now because there's a lot of great resources and and we talked about them week in and week out and and we just gave you more. Um, between gardenforwildlife.com and nwf.org backslash gardener backslash certify. There's so many, so many areas that can help you. Um, so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to ask. There's a lot of good organizations and groups to ask questions. And just that's a good start. Just be a part of it. Do what you can. Start wherever you can and, and let it grow from there. What do you think? That's, that, that's all right. I think yeah. that was good, Fran. All right, go ahead. So that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Mary Phillips from the National Wildlife Federation. <laughs> and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. Uh, we're going to say thank you to the Ecocentric Plastic Men for contributing our theme music. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planets or Healthy Planet, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line, 215-346-6189. Call and ask a question or leave a comment. We'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz and answer it to the best of our ability. And thank you to all the new members of the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. We, uh, We appreciate you joining. So you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. we got a bunch of T-shirts, phone cases, aprons. aprons. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of kids' clothes now. Water bottles? So, you, yeah, yeah you, can, you can have your kids wear plant Native Plant shirts, too. Um, even baby clothes. I love so it. So I put some baby stuff up. You'll have um, to have another kid. I, yeah, I think so. so. double the message. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> then you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet at that same website. But you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, um, really wherever you consume your podcast. And uh, if you can, if it's at all possible, leave a five-star review and because that goes a long, long way to spreading this message. And if you write a little write-up, um, you get a shout-out on the Buzz episodes. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Going back to the T-shirts, I, for, I keep been forgetting we don't keep any of that money. Yeah, 100% <laughs> all, of the profits the go to The profits help. we make are going to organizations that are kind of like boots on the ground doing this and um, on places we were impressed with. Uh, and wanted to donate. We've to. donated money to Native Habitat Project, uh, Sourland Conservancy, and Bowman Hill Wildlife yep. Preserve. So it's a fantastic organization. So. Yeah, so with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Mary, thank you so much. I would love to have you on again when time Great. permits because we, we didn't get a, to talk to you enough. So <laughs> we, we have more to talk about. Um, coming up next week, we have a buzz episode. So make sure you tune in. And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.